0: Welcome to Brain LeVette. We are delighted to have Kathleen Stock from the University of Sussex speaking to us today. Uh, She's the author of a wonderful new book, Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. Uh, Kathleen, would you like to start with a a story?
1: Okay, well, the story that I'm starting with is a real-world story, and it's um, about a theory about who should get into single-sex single sex in inverted commas changing rooms, women's changing rooms, men's changing rooms. So uh, the original story was that um, adult human females or um, younger human females should get into women's changing rooms and uh, adult or younger human males should go into men's changing rooms. And that's the way that they were designed to operate. But um, in the last century, it started to be understood that if you were a human male who had had extensive surgery and taken hormones over a long period of time so that your appearance was indiscernible from a female, then you could go into the female changing room. Um, and now we have a new understanding of who could go into the female changing room in Britain. It's not necessarily a legal understanding, but it's in popular culture that you don't even you have to have had any bodily modification as a male to go into a female changing room and change there, Um, you just need to have what's called a female gender identity. So you need to identify as a female psychologically. So um, then the question is, which of these understandings of women's spaces is the
2: best one? So you've raised this distinction between sex and gender. Um, Can you just speak a bit more about how you understand the difference between the two? constitute to be constituted?
1: Sure, well I understand sex to be a um, biologically bestowed state um, common to all humans uh, in one and it's a binary state so you're either one or the other and then there's a conversation we can have no doubt shortly about what to say about um, a very small number of people who seem to be ambiguous between those two states but for the vast majority of us we have a biological fact about us that determines whether we're in one of these two states. Um, Now, gender, um, I argue in my book is multiply ambiguous between at least four different meanings. So I will just quickly set those out Um, in some and this is in the English language, which has particular problems uh, in this area. So gender is used sometimes as a very polite synonym for sex. If you don't want to use the words S-E-X, as some people in England don't, um, because they're quite repressed, then you might say gender. Um, But that's, we'll set that aside because that's not really what you're asking me about. So then then we have gender understood as the social meanings around sex. Uh, Masculinity and femininity. um, These can change from culture to culture. It can be about girls liking pink or boys liking blue or boys liking pink and girls liking blue, it might depend on where you are historically and culturally, but it's social and it's the social norms, expectations, meanings, associations associated with the biological state. So that's the second meaning. And then um, a third rather sort of recherche meaning that I don't think has common currency, but is is popular in some subcultures in the English language is um, gender understood as manhood or womanhood, but not attached necessarily to biology. So there's some idea of manhood and womanhood as genders themselves genders um, in a way that's social, not biological. And then the fourth meaning and the popular one, the one I adverted to in my original story, is this idea of gender identity. And this, this is the idea that's the target of my book, really, or at least the, the subject of it. Um, the idea that you have this psychological state that is really female or really male or neither. So maybe you, you're non-binary and it detaches from your biological presentation and it might even detach from your social presentation. So it it's free floating potentially from both of those things. And part of the problem we have in discussions about sex and gender is that these things are just not distinguished. Um, and so people could be shouting at each other, each with a different conception of gender in mind.
0: So what I like about the nature of your work is that you're really tackling two different problems simultaneously. The one is the kind of metaphysical question, which is to work out what, what do we mean when we talk about sex and gender? Let's try and have a, a sense of the landscape. And then the second question is really about the norms. Well, once we know what the facts are on the ground, what should we do about it? And the case that you start off with um, sort of opens up the puzzle in both ways. So first of all, we might want to work out, well, what is it to be trans? What is it to be a man or a woman or to have a certain identity? And then once we've pinned that down, what follows from it? Are there any particular um, obligations we might have to people based on their identity? And do those obligations clash with other existing rights that we might have. And what you sort of point out in your case is that, well, it seems that there's some kind of cultural norm around the idea of sex segregated spaces, um, that women may have a particular interest in having a space away from from men, or male bodied people um, on the grounds of either privacy, um, or to reduce risk. Uh, In the book, you go into some detail about how Heterosexual men are more likely to commit acts of sexual violence. And um, let's say homosexual men against women or women against each other. And so they're those interests. Um, and then you might want to work out, well, how do you balance those interests while, let's say, taking into account the interests of trans people?
1: Yes. I mean, you should always be thinking about balancing uh, rights and claims about interests, I think, in a in a society in order for us to get along with each other. But what's striking about the way that, um, at least in Britain, uh, modern transactivism um, has proceeded is by paying absolutely no attention to the interests of women. It's said that um, you know we we have to literally accept that womanhood is is um, a matter of your identity, not your physical state or even your social presentation, and that we should therefore restructure all these spaces and resources. It's not just about spaces; it's about you know educational resources, prizes, shortlists political representation, you know, everywhere. Um, and and women should just shut up and accept it because well, I'm not even sure what the because is, it's the kind thing to do or something like that. Um, so I'm pointing out that women, there's it is by no means obvious that women should shut up and accept it when the harms potentially to women are so great, um, but it is really interesting from, I guess from a philosopher's point of view, to ha- because it really was forced you to go back and go, what were these social structures for? Um, in the first place, like, you know, to lo- look again at the rationale behind them. It's not that hard to work out what the social, the the, the, um, the rationale was for single sex changing rooms. I just don't think anybody really doesn't understand that. <laughs> it's, it's quite obvious when you understand the, the prevalence of sexual assault, but. Um,
2: So just to clarify your position when it comes to single sex change rooms is that they should remain single sex and that your self-identifying gender shouldn't be sufficient to allow you into a a sex change room that is different from the sex that is your biological sex.
1: Yes, that's my position because um, I take it that these spaces operate um, through the establishment of a social norm. And the social norm is based on being able to say if someone who looks male, sorry, you're in the wrong changing room. And what the new, and we're not just talking changing rooms either. I mean, let's be clear, it's hostels, it's dormitories and it's prisons in the UK as well. Although, you know, so self-identifying males with female gender identities have been placed in female prisons in the UK and uh, in California and other places too. So, um, The social norm about public spaces says that women have this safeguard, pretty much the only safeguard they have, which is to say, I'm sorry, you don't belong here. There's a changing room for you over there. And now we're being told that it's your inner state that determines your right of access. This is explicitly written into the policies governing these rooms or spaces. So if women no longer have the capacity to say, I'm sorry, you don't belong there, because for all we know, and you can't tell on the outside, a male may have a female gender identity. It's not tied to the way they look. It's not tied to what they're wearing. It's not tied to anything um, social about them. or physical.
2: So I want to just tease out exactly what you're saying. So what you're saying is that if you allow male sexed persons into female bathrooms who identify as trans and as women, um, there is a risk to the woman in those bathrooms. So there is, a, there, there is a danger to them. And then also, there's also perhaps a triggering effect. So they may have an interest in just not having a male-bodied person around, I'm assuming. Yeah, those are and, two
1: separate things, yeah, but true, yeah.
2: Okay. And, and what I'm curious about is, is your position an empirical claim that, that those needs um, in reality, if you just look at, at empirical circumstance, um, are such that they have higher utility weighting than the needs of those trans people who want to walk into those bathrooms. So is it an empirical claim that's based on a utilitarian calc or is it an absolutist claim? It's regardless of how that calc comes out, no. this is the way it should be done. It's
1: an empirical claim, um, albeit um, functioning in a space where nobody's bothering to look at <laughs> what the effects are. So it's based on extrapolation from understanding about patterns of male uh, predation and sexual assault. So this is not a claim about trans women. It's a claim about males. <laughs> you know, you can't separate out the sheep from the goats in this respect. Um, certainly not if we're dealing with public spaces where you're dealing with strangers who you don't know. So it's not. It's constantly. My position is constantly mischaracterized as a fear specifically about the trans population, but it's not. It's a claim about males, some of whom will be trans because there is. There's. You know. There's a. I can point you to cases of transsexual predation and, and some of whom won't be trans and will be pretending or opportunistic. Everybody who works in um, the legal profession, the criminal legal profession knows about opportunistic sexual assault. So um, it's, a, it's an empirical claim. And then there's, um, there's no evidence that uh, those males who identify as females are less likely to assault um than males um and that's the sort of evidence we'd be looking for in order to change these spaces so radically um there's also evidence on in in britain anyway from unisex spaces that sexual assault is more likely to occur there and it's not just bathrooms either you know it's like showers changing rooms like i say i think it's easy to mischaracterize my position our position generally is oh they just don't want to be in Toilets, (laughs) toilets. <laughs> but toilets are the least of our problems, I think, although in Britain, m- most public toilets are sort of multi stall with quite easy access between the stalls, And there's things like upskirting camera phone voyeurism, there's all sorts of potential um, violations that can occur in these spaces. It's not just assault. Um, the second point is about privacy. Yes, I think that's, that isn't an also an empirically based claim that, um, It's not really surprising that if you've brought women up and men up for years in single sex spaces, operating a certain way that they will find it disturbing when they suddenly operate a different way in a way that's been imposed from above undemocratically. And there are many women, especially um, victims of sexual assault, who do not really want to go into a space um, to use the bathroom or a a similar space and know that there could be a male next in the next cubicle, they just don't want to do it. Whether or not, you know, they are actually in danger is really immaterial. In that case, we've got, we take account of people's feelings. And we take account of previous history, previous histories of trauma and all sorts of other contexts. So we should do so here.
0: So a couple of questions for clarification, I suppose the one is, in your original case, you, you show a kind of progression in the change of values. The one in other words, is people who've taken um either hormones or um, have gone through a a surgical procedure to change their outer appearance, and so um, may very well appear to be different to the sex at which they were born. um, And versus the person who proclaims it, in other words, the person who says, well, my, I have an internal gender identity, and that is different from the sex that I appear to be. Um, So I wonder if you would if you'd want a different legislative regime for those two different sets of people. The other one is, is this about different rules um, for women? So um, would men have a similar right to privacy to say, well, we're uncomfortable with a female bodied person entering our spaces, even if let's say you think that there's um, not a risk of a sexual assault, but there might still be a sort of um, an interest in the privacy. Um, And then I suppose the question is um, about the the deeply held interests. So uh, and what, what we do with you know, in other words, the trans person who says, well, I, I was born male, I physically present as very female, Um, is my obligation now to go into a men's only locker room or prison, you know, and, and, and suffer the risks that are attendant to that?
1: No, and those two questions, the first and the third are linked, right? So what, uh, you know, I accept, it would be crazy not to that there are trans women, let's just be talking about trans women in this specific case, but it's also true of trans men, that in um, past, you know, that's the word useful, you know, you cannot tell that they are not of the sex that they would prefer to be because they have modified their bodies that way. And it's not really a matter of um, shoulds in this case, I think it's just impossible to legislate against people who look very female going into female spaces, because the spaces aren't operated through some sort of identity check. They're really, as I say, operated in these rather loose norms. Like, do you look right the space? Yes, you do fine. And so I think rhetorically, my critics quite often get purchased here by giving this kind of fantastical situation of like, what you're going to do genital checks at the door? You know, of course not, because <laughs> I'm not mad or a liberal. <laughs> but we're not talking. I'm not talking about cases like that. I'm talking about cases of obviously male people in female spaces. So. But then so then the third question you had is you know what what are the obligations of people who who pass I think that's a good question I think um I don't know that I have a firm view on that but I do think what I do think is we need third if, if this is as big a social problem as, as trans activists would have us believe and it's being told we're being told it's a massive problem then we need third spaces so we need we need to build different kinds of spaces that aren't necessarily the disabled toilet with a gender neutral sticker on it you know, in order to accommodate not just trans people who pass, who might not feel comfortable because, you know, there are many trans women who actually feel uncomfortable in women's spaces. They just also feel uncomfortable in men's spaces. They don't necessarily want to encroach on, they recognize the difference between themselves and and women and they, and they don't necessarily want to encroach on that. Um, so we need third spaces. Um, I think we also need them for, um, the other group of people that suffer from this, which would be um, trans men, because if trans men pass and look like men, then they shouldn't be in the ladies, then that actively would undermine this social norm that I'm talking about too. So now that we seem to have as a society um, this different many different ways of presentation that, that can look like sexed appearances, but are not sexed appearances. We need, therefore need to accommodate that through the kinds of spaces that we provide. So I'm absolutely up for, for, for you know, activism in that respect.
2: So I worry about arguments like this for a few reasons. Um, w- one of them is that it has as part of its justification, this idea that, well, traditionally, this is the way we've done things um and that you think there's good reasons for that tradition um Mm -hmm. now what could be happening and this would be a problem for your position is there could be a sea change and when that happens tradition shifts and the norm changes and during that transition of course there's a lot of discomfort and a lot of people who subscribe to previous traditions still subscribe to those and reject the new traditions as traditional but over time, perhaps you look back in 20, 10 or 20 or 30 years time, perhaps it's inverted. Um, I wonder whether your position would change together with that sea change. That's, that's the query I have is, would you then say in 30 years time, if we have this discussion, well, um, you know, for the last 30 years, it's now commonly understood that trans women will, um, will appear in, in women's bathrooms. Um, And even if uh, they haven't undergone any kind of um, presentation transformation, so even if they're male-bodied, but they identify as female or identify as woman, rather, um, if that becomes the tradition in time, which it may because of this legislation, would your position shift that that should become the new norm and it's correct?
1: No, because I'm not arguing for the norm for the sake of it. I mean, the sea change that would need to be in place is that men would have to stop attacking women. okay good good you're telling me that that's the sea change that's going to happen in 30 years well good luck
2: (laughs) okay so i want to discuss that because it's a point that you made earlier which is that um, there's no good evidence you say that trans men um, or rather trans women are any less likely to attack women than um, cisgendered men Mm -hmm. but is there any evidence to the contrary in other words is there any evidence either way Or is this just something we just don't have data on?
1: We don't have much data. There's one study, uh, a Swedish study that gets cited in this regard. Um, It would be preposterous to think that the burden of proof was on us, (laughs) to show that we would have to establish that there was um, no uh, lesser risk than we think there is when we're talking about changing a system this radically. So in every other big social change, the burden of proof is on the people that want to do the changing, not the people that want to keep things the same. So I think, again, this is a sort of rhetorical tactic uh, or placed upon an extra burden placed upon women. Now you have, in order, you know, the system will change unless you can show that this change will not, will be a problem. Um, what there are is plenty of uh, anecdotal evidence that men will predate in, in spaces where women get undressed or sleep, it may not always be described as um, as a trans woman's activity because uh, quite often there's this kind of "no true Scotsman" fallacy going on here. Like, as soon as a trans person is apparently convicted or char- charged or convicted with a crime, well, they weren't really a trans person, so they weren't really doing it, you know, on the in the right category. If you look up "cross dresser" found in you know, found voyeuristically uh, in a bathroom, or um, man dressed as woman found in, then you find a lot more cases. And in prison, there's, there's quite a lot of, um, as you'd expect, there's um, a relatively high number of sexual offenders transitioning in prison because they think it might get them into a, um, a more relaxed space as female prisons being lower security
0: than mental. If I understand your position correctly, it's to say that if you're going to make a change in in law, which is that anyone who proclaims their gender identity to to be a particular way, that that must be accepted. Well, you could have good actors and bad actors. So in other words, you could have those that have a sincere belief and those that have an insincere belief. And it might be the case that every single person with a sincere belief will never cause any harm, um, will never go out and predate on anyone but that the rule that's been created doesn't allow you to distinguish between the sincere and the insincere. And that's the concern. In other words, you could have a group of um, men who are going to exploit this rule so they can get access to women's only spaces uh, for some deviant purpose. Even if there are no trans people who are ever going to pose a threat to women, um, the fact that the rule can't disambiguate is a concern.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, and I also think we need to look at the the rule as it applied to um, what you would call cis males, and I would just call, uh, I don't know, men, <laughs> men who weren't trans, that um, nobody ever thought it was a character reference, <laughs> you know, not being able to get into a changing room. It wasn't like, oh, you're all rapists, so you can't come in. It was, no, most of you, of course you aren't, and of course you wouldn't dream of doing this but in all because women can't tell the difference and because once they're in it's hard to get them out again um we need to have a sort of broad brush safeguarding norm and that's how safeguarding norms operate they do not sort of they could not possibly work to identify the the predators from the non-predators they're safeguarding so they exclude the whole group and they put or they put in extra barriers for everyone Uh, you know so that's just how it works now the other thing I, i think and I also hope we'll move on from changing rooms because that's not what the whole book's about. <laughs> but um, is that, that the part of the impetus for um, the discussion, the pol- political discussion about getting trans women into women's spaces is that they are a threat of violence in men's spaces. Now that I think is true. I think that's true. Um, it depends on how Sort of feminine presenting, they are, but it's certainly a transgressive and considered transgressive by many men that a, a, another man should look feminine or be presenting in a feminine way. Um, now that is so that's a problem again that suggests we need third spaces, but it's not women who are committing the violence, so it's not our responsibility as a sex to accommodate this problem, particularly when it puts males into our spaces who then may attack us. So I think that needs to get to get
2: thought about too. So in an effort to move the discussion away from bathrooms, um, <laughs> <Changing> what, <laughs> and I'm, I, you've presented the arguments for why, um, why uh, bathrooms should remain only for those people of the sex that the bathroom denotes. Um, I'm curious why this has caused such an uproar. And I'm assuming it has something to do with not just bathrooms, but also um, the way people are reading your view correctly or incorrectly, I'm not sure, on whether trans women, for example, are real women. Um, what is your position on that?
1: My position is that trans women are not literally women. My position is that um, the category of woman is a coherent, reasonable category, and man. It's a coherent, reasonable categories to have. In fact, every language I know of has had a systematic way to differentiate between males and females since the beginning of time, because it, you know, you've got to know how, who to have sex with in order to reproduce for a start. So you need concepts that determine, um, that, that disambiguate men from women. And that is a sex based category. So what I also think is that there's a kind of benevolent fiction, which I myself am willing to. Um, entertain for certain social purposes, interpersonal contexts. So that, you know, there is a sense in which trans women as women is a fiction and it might be a benevolent fiction and it might be that I go along with it, you know, interpersonally at times. So I'm, I'm happy to use preferred pronouns, but I'm clear that what I'm doing is engaging in a fiction and I'm not stating a literal truth that I believe because I don't. And I know that scene is absolutely heretical. Uh, I'm not unaware of that. But I've written a book to try and defend it. So that's just what I think.
0: So that's, that's a nice case for saying, well, the metaphysics might be one way, but that might not have an effect on your moral obligations. So you might think, well, I have all the obligations to treat people with respect and dignity. um, And to, to the extent that they have certain preferences that I can accommodate, well, then I ought to do so. Let's say I say I believe myself to be Napoleon. um, And you know that if by referring to me as Napoleon and sort of treating me as if I'm Napoleon, um, that that'll have all these benefits for me, um, that I will say I'll feel respected and I can engage with you and I won't feel excluded. You know, you might think, well, that's the kind thing to do. Um, and that's, you know, there's not too much of a cost on you referring to me as Mr. Bonaparte. Um, and you might think, you know, maybe uh, if I can't talk you out of it, out of this, this sort of state of Uh, a a false belief, Um, well, then I I shouldn't, you know, in other words, if the cost of trying to talk you out of it would be very severe. Um, But it doesn't make me Napoleon. Uh, It doesn't change the fact of the matter. Now, I suppose the question on on sex is whether it is possible to take a step to convert. So for example, if I told you, I am an Orthodox Jew, Um, you might think, well, that's not a mere matter of proclamation. You have to undergo a certain process to either be born that way, to have had an Orthodox Jewish mother, or to have gone through a conversion process. And there'll be some social recognition around that. And people say, well, you were, you know, uh, you moved from a state of not Jewish to Jewish, um, and you could convert. Um, We might think, for example, in the realm of of art, um, if you have, um, let's say, the fountain, Duchamp's Fountain. He says, well, I have found this object, and I'm going to proclaim it a work of art, that you can transform an ordinary urinal into a work of art. And, you know, that's sort of commonly accepted among philosophers of art that you can do that. So it seems that objects can change from one state to another. And the question is, um, can that happen with regards to sex?
1: No. And also, the institutional theory of art is shit. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, no, because it's not the sort of thing. You know, I can proclaim you married if I'm a priest and I have the right authority. And you know, we have a whole lot of institutional actions that can change the state of something. But that doesn't mean that everything's state could be changed in any possible way. So um, we're talking about the possibility of changing sex. So you'd have to have an argument as to why sex, a biological state as we understand it, and we have a lot of theories about biology and presuppositions, could be changed by an artificial intervention, let alone a, you know, an act of proclamation. Um, And I just don't, And I mean, I go through various attempts to argue this in the book from, sort of, some come from kind of Judith Butler style um, skepticism about there being any natural states in the world, and some come from quite realist looking arguments about intersex people, but I I try and argue throughout the book that, you you know, they don't show that you can change sex. And in fact, you can't.
2: Okay. So I think a a really important question um, that arises out of your position is what does it mean to be a woman? And it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you think that what it means to be a woman is to be biologically a woman. And then you might cash that out in various ways. Um, but is that your position?
1: So what it means to be a woman is to be a human female, an adult. And what it means to be a girl is to be a human female. That's not an adult. And those categories, you know, are meaningful. They pick out real natural categories in the world. I mean, maybe the difference between an adult and a child isn't a natural category, but the, the female bit, the human female bit is a natural category. And the word woman is the, the token, which, or the type, which allows us to communicate about the category. So we need it because it is a category. It has causal effects in the world and many social impacts. Yeah, so that's my position.
2: Okay, so now here's a problem for your position. So when we talk about social ontology of groups generally, we don't think that bare-boned biology is sufficient to generate a social group. We think it can generate a very thin type of group. So there's a distinction that social ontologists make between thick groups and, and thin, thin conceptions of groups. So a thin group might be everyone who wears brown shoes. Okay. So they all have this feature in common. Um, And that feature is not going to generate the kind of cohesion that you would expect in a thick social group where they could act together and they could have certain rights and they could persist through time as a group, not just as an aggregate of individuals.
1: I don't think women's a social group.
2: Uh Aha. Okay. But now here's the problem. If you don't think women are a social group, then it seems strange to talk about the interests of women. It seems strange to talk about women um, as accommodating certain things. Earlier, you used the terms we and our, so we accommodate certain things. It sounds social groupy to me.
1: Well, not social groupy in the way that fits in the way you've just described it. I mean, obviously it is a position I have, I think it's obvious that biological states have social consequences in a social world. Human beings have the capacity to follow social norms at the drop of a hat, generate stereotypes at the drop of a hat, that's all hardwired into us. So um, we have, there's a social world and, sex causes impacts um, and those impacts generate interests, you know, together. So in the interests of sport, um, sporting competition where women get to exercise their bodies, engage in healthy competition and so on, it's in the interests of biological females not to be matched against biological males. So does that make us a social group? I don't know. I don't. Certainly, womanhood is not a social state.
2: So this is why it's important, is because I think you and trans people might be talking across purposes. Because trans people, when they say I'm a woman, might not be making the claim, or at least charitably speaking, they may not be making the claim that I am now um, of the sex female, they might be making the claim, I now belong to the social group of women. women. And social groups are often often include as one of their constituent um, uh, parts is the belief that you belong to the group.
1: The way that I've structured the book is that I spend the first part talking about sex and say at this point, I'm only talking about female being female or male. I'm saying nothing about what it is to be a woman, because I know that that some people consider that to be a different question. And then I establish that there are males, there are females. I then argue we need categories to refer to those given their social effects. And then I say, okay, now let's hit the question, what is a woman? And I go through all the possible, well, not all of them, but you know some of the main contenders, including the idea that womanhood is a social role. And I try and argue against that too. So I'm, I am aware that some trans people think, so some trans people think they've changed sex, some people think they haven't changed, some trans people think they haven't changed sex, but they have nonetheless shifted into the, you know, if they were men, they are now women. And they they have some theory about why that's true. And many of them, I think, don't think either of those things, but they're engaged in some sort of fictional process, which is perfectly understandable. And I'm happy to go along with it too, as I say, for some person interpersonal context. But there's, so there's a range of cases. I think philosophers quite often assume that their recondite, you know, arguments must be the way that trans people are really thinking. But that is not my experience from talking to trans people. They're not all reading Sally Haslanger or whoever and and saying, "Ah, oh, womanhood is a social role." It's 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 a quite common to a university subculture, but it's not necessarily the way all trans people are thinking.
0: So I think it's useful to point out that you're going to have a variety of different views. And what you might have is, let's say, a minority community uh, within a larger trans community being more vocal than others, and sort of others assuming that that is the view and the only view. I I wonder about this. So if the claim is, you can't change your biological sex, can you change your type two gender? In other words, that social form of gender. So in other words, you believe yourself to, let's say I was born a man, I now identify as a woman, um, I then uh, I go through, let's say, some form of conversion process in the sense of I change my physical appearance, I change my name, I, uh, you know, have all those steps and other people then take me to be a woman, you can imagine I, I move towns, uh, everybody knows me as Maria instead of Mark. Um, at, at that point in time, do you think that a change has happened? Um
1: a change has happened. yes. What is the change
0: from? Changes to...
1: is the way that you are that you present to others, the way you are treated by others, no doubt. Uh, and it may be a change in the way you think of yourself. It's not automatic. There's a range of cases if you actually talk to trans women, some of them say no, no, I'm still a man or some of them say I'm still male and some of them say I'm a woman and some of them say I'm female. So um, there's just a range of cases, but you haven't become a woman just because you think you've become a woman or because you look like a woman because womanhood is not a look it's not a costume it's not a so, you know it's not a, not a social presentation it's a category for picking out a biological state which persists despite what you it, what hormones you ingest or which you know artificial sex characteristics are created and that, that's how i understand the category if we didn't have that category we just have to reinvent it again You know, we still need it because if this this person Maria goes to hospital, um, she's going to need to tell the doctor that she has uh, XY chromosomes that might interact with drugs in certain ways. If she goes to sleep with somebody, I think she should tell them that she is a male because I think it makes a difference to a person sleeping with her if she goes in a sporting competition, she should not com- compete against females because she will have an unfair advantage on them given her biological state. So in other words, there are contexts which, where sex still matters independently of looks.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I suppose, in other words, it, it might be the case that you say you can't change the sex or and but you could change the gender or as the claim, well, all this talk of gender is nonsense. Um, all there is is sex um, that the rest of it is social fabrication, um, and we should pay no heed to it.
1: You can change, I, I, I differentiated at the beginning four different senses of gender. You can change gender in a sense of sort of, um, the way you socially present. And of course you can, you can make yourself look in a way that no one will know the difference we've become so confused, I think particularly university educated people have become so confused about what gender and womanhood is and the interactions. There's a perfectly respectable use of the word and the category woman that picks out, you know, the adult version of the human female, sorry to go on, but you know, we still need that concept. If we didn't have that concept, we would have, we, we, our vocabulary would be massively impoverished. And so, at this point, of course, you're going to find someone saying, Well, can't you just give up the word? <laughs> you know, can't you just say they're women? And, and then say, Okay, so now we need a new, a new word for what makes us different. Because in sport or in medicine or in sexual orientation, which is another one we haven't talked about, um, we'll need to, you know, a category that still covers what makes us different. So I just think stick with what we have, which always worked fine. We have woman, we have man. And, you know, of course, it's not what everyone wants to hear but it is very helpful and rational to have two categories that split us that way, although we may be, you know, we may be put in the same category for other purposes, but we still, there is a fundamental difference between males and females that needs to be marked.
2: So you've repeatedly made this claim that, well, what a woman is, is an adult female, but now We'll bring a, a trans person onto the show and they'll repeatedly make a different claim. So they'll say, well, what a woman is, is it someone who self-identifies as a woman? Perhaps they'll have some other criteria. Um, and what what you're talking about, they'll say is a female, not a woman. Now, they'll be quite dogmatic about this. And it sounds like you're being quite dogmatic about this. No, I've
1: written a book, so I'm not being dogmatic. Okay, good.
2: <laughs> so, so what I want to know is, why is your position better than this?
1: Well, I'm trying to explain it to you. <laughs> so we have these different interests. Like, so in the world of um, non-human animals, we have females and males. Sex is a constant throughout many different species, not just humans. And we have this word, male and females, that we could apply to plants, we can apply to uh, mammals, um, invertebrates and so on. And it's normally understood as females are something like the the people on the path to produce large ga- gametes and males are, not the people, sorry, the the beings, the entities on the path to produce small gametes, whether that's pollen or sperm, <laughs> you know. So now we, so we've got, a concept for those two, that division. But now we have humans, so we need a concept to differentiate these con- these things. as okay. they are articulated in humans. We in 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 dogs, we have dog and bitch. We have um, stag and doe. You know, in, in in mammals, we have all sorts of concepts: hen and cock. So we need them for humans too. And male and female won't do it because there are males that aren't human. So we need human-shaped male and female concepts. And we also need ones to differentiate the adults from the younger ones. So we have girl and woman, and that's what those concepts do, right? I'm not being dogmatic, I'm pointing it out. Like in a hundred different conversations, it will be really important to have a category that can differentiate you from me, and me from my daughter, (laughs) you know? and And those are the, that's how the categories work. Now what's happened is some kind of entryism where We now somebody is saying or lots of people are saying that's not how the categories work at all what they do is they they work on looks or they work on feelings and I'm saying well if that's the category it's not the same one anymore it doesn't do what we originally needed it to do and I've given all these examples like sexual orientation sport medicine uh, and sexual assault because men are bigger and stronger than women. And that's nothing to do with how you identify and it's not mitigated by taking sex-based hormones or having your genitalia altered. So there are physical differences that make a difference that we need to track. So that's my argument. It's not dogma, it may be wrong, but it's not dogma.
2: Okay, so couldn't someone say to you, aren't you committing some sort of fallacy here? And the fallacy is that, you're rejecting the existence of certain things just because we don't have a word for it. So you're saying, well, we have, we, we don't have a word if it's not man and woman for what it means to be a male human or a female human. And so, well, let's just collapse those distinctions. So it it must be the case that all men are male humans, Um, but they could say, but hold on, there's many examples throughout scientific history where we have to come up with new terms that distinguish new Different variations of things, and you know, just because we don't have those terms to begin with, doesn't mean those variations aren't there.
1: No, I don't understand. I think I think you might have it the wrong way around. I'm precisely saying that we need, um, you know, if if it turns out that there is a category of males that have female gender identities, we precisely need a new word for them, but is not the word we already have.
0: I understand your position is to say the terms uh, trans woman and woman are not identical with each other. Um, They refer to different features of the world. Um, And so that's why you might want to keep both of those words alive. Uh, You could imagine, in other words, the next step would be to say, well, we shouldn't refer to trans women at all, because trans women are women. So we should just refer to women. Uh, And then you would have a dissolution of categories. And I take it that's your concern. In other words, you want your category to be precise. And you want to be able to recognize people that fall outside of, let's say, the existing biological categories and have new words for them.
1: The discussion about whether we have categories of male and female man and women and whether those are co-referential is not supposed to settle all categories that humans fall into. So quite obviously we do still need a category of trans women and within the category of trans women we probably need several different subcategories actually because there are many different routes psychologically to becoming a trans woman and we're going to be able to want to differentiate those. Um but that's all consistent with us all falling into one or the other of the the first category so the idea that trans women are women i've i've denied um but it doesn't mean that that trans women don't exist or that we shouldn't have words for the kinds of people they are that's all absolutely fine it, so it's not me that's trying to collapse several things into one category i think quite the opposite there's this extended argument in the book for um multiplying our concepts and categories to get a richer vocabulary to be able to discuss the phenomenon
0: We've alluded a bit to to sexual orientation, and you know, in Douglas Murray's book *Madness of Crowds*, he talks about there being this tension between the gay rights movement and the trans rights movement. um, That it's sort of presented as a united front, but that you might wind up with some conflicts. And so, one of the examples that that he examines in the book is this idea that you could have a child who, let's say, would have typically been thought of as, let's say, a young gay boy. Um, and is now being described as a trans girl. Um, and that it's a way of eradicating, uh, you know, a, a gay youth, or the other kind would be to sort of look at historical figures, who let's say would have been understood as gay, and then to say, well, no, they weren't really gay, they were actually trans. Um, and that seems like it sets up some kind of tension. The, the other kind is uh, Stonewall, from what I gather, has changed, um, the definition of what it is to have a sexual orientation, which is not that it's to be attracted to someone of the same sex, but of the same gender identity. Um, in other words, I could make the claim that I was a, a lesbian woman, um, and then say, you know, if a lesbian woman doesn't want to be with me, uh, you know, she is being somehow transphobic um, because she's not recognizing my my sexual orientation and my and my gender identity. So. That seems to sort of give us a sense of the landscape about how these different um, issues could intersect with each other.
1: I mean, this partly amplifies a bit the importance of sex and the and the importance of having categories that refer to it. Is that um, the category of women and men, women and man, um, feed into all sorts of other categories like mother, daughter, lesbian, <laughs> um, and so on, and um, you're right that the modern trans movement have seen this. And so because they want to re-engineer the concept of woman, they also want to re-engineer the concept of lesbian and mother actually um, as well. So illegally speaking, and that's really important because um, the problem, the sort of social problem of, of um, homosexuality has been precisely same sex attraction. And it's um, and the revulsion that some people have for that. And so that has allowed sort of more progressive countries to develop legislation that protects people who are attracted, like me, who are attracted to the um, same sex. Now, if we redefine a lesbian on the basis of identity as someone with a female gender identity attracted to other people with female gender identities, although in practice it seems to be just. Females quite often, um, then that's a heterosexual male (laughs) in my book, uh, calling themselves a lesbian. And it's very concerning that LGBT organizations have gone along with this, because of course their their main mission originally was to protect same-sex attracted people. Um, And that has all sorts of knock-on effects, both in terms of children, as you say, whose self-conceptions are coming into play, their concepts are getting settled. You know, they may not be that clear on what a woman or a man is in the first place. They may be identifying their own same-sex attraction as meaning that they're in the wrong body or that they are really a man or a woman. Um, and trans activism has ensured that we're not allowed to talk about that and that the, the, psychi- the psychological profession has to affirm, what they call affirm, the child's self-conception without criticism. So that's one set of problems. The other set of problems, as you say, is for lesbians in particular, who now have to sort of give a kind of moral argument as to why they're not attracted to males with penises who call themselves lesbians. You know, and that's bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me bizarre. I mean, to some people, it seems, you know, that I'm, I'm the one with the, the dodgy views. But I think the whole point is you're same sex attracted. and We didn't used to have to explain that and now we do.
0: So this is also not a case where you, in other words, you want to take into account further kinds of orientation. So in other words, you might want to preserve the original meaning of lesbian. Um, and then say there are people that are pansexual. In other words, they're attracted to, uh, you know, a variety of different sexes, and that would include people who are trans. Uh, that, as you, as you point out, a richness in language is quite useful so that we know exactly what precisely we're tracking. I imagine there are people who say, I'm attracted to those that share my sex and those that share my uh Let's say sexual presentation or gender identity belief, um, and those are different from people who just share my, you know, an interest in the same sex. And so you want to be able to cash that out. Other thing that I find interesting, I'm not sure if you're aware of the country that performs the most number of, let's say, sex change operations was Thailand. The second is Iran, I
1: know.
0: Um, and the the reason is really interesting. So Ahmadinejad, when he was, uh, you know, one of the Iranian leaders, had said we have no homosexuals in Iran. Um, And it was seen as an utterly bizarre statement to have made. And um, from what I gather, sex changes were not uh, regarded as um, uh, in line with the views of the regime up until about 1986, uh, at which point someone said, well, there's this gender-like soul that is trapped in the wrong body. And if you will allow us to kind of meet God's purpose of being in the correct body, you know, then that would be the right thing to do in terms of... um, let's say, Islamic principles in Iran. Uh, And so UNED had a widespread acceptance for it. Um, And the idea would be that if if you think you're gay, you're mistaken, uh, you're actually trans. And what's interesting is that, you know, I think in 2008 when Ahmadinejad sort of made these statements, you know, the Western world would have said, this is an outrageous view. There's clearly something different about being trans and being gay. And what we're seeing now is maybe more of a collapsing in these two categories. I couldn't
1: agree more. I mean, I think we... The people that go along with this really need to ask themselves what the difference is and and I hope that they don't come up with a sort of mealy-mouthed uh, consent or something like that because the whole we you know we may not be forcibly um castrating <laughs> gay males but we do seem to be at least ruling out discussion for children developing their own self-conceptions and teenagers who may, whose self-conceptions may be temporary and may be rooted in trauma or autism or same-sex attraction, all this, we're saying, no, 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 you can't talk about that. There's something inside you that's coming out now. We can, you know, this is it, this is you, this is your authentic self, your real self and all the rest of the rhetoric that goes around this. And it's not, I mean, it's not a, it's a very old thought that gay people are really trapped in the wrong body. It, it's, it predates the tran- modern trans activism. You know, there's a, the sexologist um, Kraft Ebbing, I think it was, who who said, you know, the lesbian is the is the masculine soul heaving in the feminine bosom, sort of thing like that. So, um, I think I think I've got that one right. But there's a, so there's a long history of people saying that gay men are really women in some way, and 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 lesbians are really men, and so it's obviously a natural, not natural, but kind of familiar thought for. Um, heterosexual people to have about gay people. And that should really concern us <laughs> when it seems to be re-emerging in a new culture ex- through a new cultural expression. And we mustn't forget that the consequences are not negligible for children and adolescents who go down a medicalized route. You know, they go, they have puberty blockers in this country, which um, retards their pubertal development, which means that they don't go through all the natural kind of markers that they might have done. Which also means their sexual development is stunted, and their emotional development possibly. There's also potential impacts on bone density, kidney function, and things like that that we really don't know enough about. And then, if you are on puberty blockers, it's very, very likely as 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 you transition into adulthood that you will move to cross-sex hormones. So that's it. That's a that's a path that started quite early on. And in our culture, in British culture, I don't know what it's like in South Africa, but there just no real opportunity to scrutinize that, the costs, what a ch- what a person's life like might be later, what they're losing if they get their breasts cut off now, or um their ovaries removed in their early 20s. You know, there are huge ethical issues here that are being glossed over.
2: And I think we can all agree on that. So um, you might have picked up that Mark is more sympathetic about your view than I am, I have, but yeah. I do think it's very important that you're able to um, discuss it. Um, I think it's very important that that you're not deplatformed and that you have the, the room to explain your position and discuss it openly in the pursuit of coming to the correct position with opponents, um to to ultimately come to some sort of agreement, at least in principle.
1: Of course. And we've got to ask ourselves why there's this huge attempt to shut all this down. And, and that's mean,
2: why we invited you. I mean, that's why we both feel it's very important, even if one of us disagrees with you. <laughs>
1: I think come of disagreement, that's absolutely fine. I mean, it's, I'm a philosopher, it's absolutely normal to have slightly tetchy discussions with people that disagree with you. Uh, and, you know, I'm very glad to be here and glad to have the opportunity to do it.
0: As philosophers, we, we fundamentally agree with each other all the time for fun. You know, this is, um, you know, what we do for a living, this idea of engaging in arguments so we can try and get to what's true. And it seems that we now find ourselves in a cultural landscape where it's become... Very hard to do that on certain issues. Um, that there are certain things that you cannot express a contrary position because that'll be seen as insensitive or uh, as a, as itself harmful. And it strikes me that there's something dangerous about this. So, I mean, and, and you, I gather, have have gone through this in you know quite a public way. Um, you know, after being awarded an OBE by the Queen, um, you know, you had this a barrage of, of academics, you know, signing a letter denouncing this, uh, and then uh, others sort of signing a letter denouncing those people. Um, and, I, and I think what's what's amazing to me as well is that you've said well, all that stuff's really a distraction. I want to try and get the truth. I'm going to produce my book. I'm going to publicly engage. It's going to be hard. Um, People are going to come, you know, come after me and it'll be unpleasant and I'm going to lose some friendships and it's going to be, you know, have all these other difficulties. Um, So how do you, how do you manage that landscape? How do you, uh, you know, engage in a truth-seeking exercise uh, given how difficult it's become?
1: I mean, I can only speak for myself. I care about these issues. I really, really care about them. So um, I wouldn't do it for fun. And it actually used to drive me crazy when people would say, oh, she's just engaging in these abstract thought experiments. This is not abstract, you know, we have a really unusual example of philosophical high theory coming to determine, you know, really practical aspects of women's life. You would never have predicted that like, the prison service in the UK has, you, you could trace a route from Judas Butler to decisions made in the UK prison service as a sociologist I know has done. Um, so I care about the outcomes. I care about that and I'm a lesbian, you know, I care. So this, I think from my perspective, this is a kind of attack on rationality, but it's also attack an attack on women and and on lesbians. So. And on children, like practically speaking, never mind whether half the people think they're doing it for the best of intentions. So there's been lots of atrocities in the world committed through the, through good intentions. So I really do care about that, and that's just what keeps me going. Um, although I have had moments, obviously, when I'm lying on the floor, <laughs> uh, you know, it can get you down. But um, I think you just have to keep going.
0: So one of our um, frequent guests is Rebecca Tuval, and she wrote a paper on uh, transracialism and is producing a book now called Changing Identities. Um, and this sort of looks at, you know, people that, um, that let's say, are transgender and people that are transracial. I-, I wonder if you think, what you think the parallels are? In other words, what Tuval does in, in her case is to sort of accept for the sake of argument that one can be a uh, are transgendered, and that we think we ought to afford people that are trans various rights and, and, you know, and respect them. Uh, and that is generally how the culture reacts. But that there's a uh, people that are transracial are, are condemned and, you know, seen as liars and are treated quite badly. So I wonder on the metaphysics, if you think someone could change race, um, if you think that race is as stable a category as sex, um, or if it's, um, is also an impossibility. And what do you think the norms would be for people that, are, that claim to be transracial?
1: I think my answer that, to that would depend on what I thought race was. If you thought the race was a biological fact about somebody, then I would think you can't change it. If you don't, um, and obviously lots of people don't, uh, then extra questions are drawn in there. But I, I do still think that um, how you feel, doesn't affect how you socially present. <laughs> of course, how you feel might then motivate you to make certain changes about your appearance. And that's clearly what happened with um, Dolezal, which is the case that Duval was talking about. You know, it wasn't just that she feels black. She feels black and that caused her to change her appearance. Um, do I think that then various rights flow from it? Uh, I mean, I think everyone has the right general, there's general human rights that apply to everybody, including Dolazal, but does she get any special rights through being transracial, allegedly? Um, I don't see why. (laughs) I don't see why. And but equally, I mean, I think the whole fuss about Tuvel, the whole kind of psychodrama of the philosophical profession was precisely because she was treating as a modus ponens what I would treat as a modus tollens. So, you know, um, but people who didn't want to say you can change race, but did want to say you can change sex or that there is such a meaningful category you know, um, were stuck <laughs> and therefore had to create an enormous hysterical fuss in order to move away from the fact that she was pursuing In a logical way, the consequences of a view that I would reject. (laughs) You know, so I'm not I'm not really faced with that dilemma myself, um, because I don't think that the the you know the the whole structure gets going.
0: On that question of special rights, so you said human beings get rights in virtue of being human beings. Do you think that some sub some some subcategories should get special rights? In other words, some racial groups. Um, some sexual orientations, some sexes, or do you think, no, there's no special rights, there's no group rights, you just get human rights and we treat you accordingly?
1: No, I mean, I misspoke there slightly. So I, I'm not talking about kind of natural Lockean human rights, I'm talking about legal rights, I suppose. I don't, um, and I do think that groups could, should have special legal rights, depending on the social context of the culture they're in. So that's why I think that women should have special protections. And I think that gay people should have special protections. And I certainly think um, that black people and people of color should have special protections um, in a racist society or in you know, women in a sexist society, gay people in a homophobic society. If you can change your appearance sufficiently Let's just stick to the the trans case. You know, a trans woman who changes her appearance sufficiently that now she's looks female will be subject potentially to sexism and misogyny. Um, the law has an easy way to deal with that, as I understand it, which is that there's. Um, I mean, you're a lawyer. One of you is a lawyer, right? But in British law, I think there's a category, a sort of offence of um, discrimination by perception. So it sort of derivatively falls out of whatever category you've protected, that if someone's perceived as falling within that category, they are also protected. It doesn't mean you then have to generate a separate category for all the people perceived as this and call it something else. In Britain, I think we could redo the law to just protect sex non-conforming behavior.
0: You could take the one view which is, I say, I I think you're a woman and I'm a sexist who doesn't like women, so I'm going to treat you poorly. Versus someone saying, I don't think you're a woman, I think you're a trans woman, and I really dislike trans women, and because of that prejudice, I'm going to treat you badly. Seems like that's a separate category. And given all the other categories you've had for the allocation of special rights, it seems to be that the common ground is prejudice. So in other words, you might think, for example, in a society that's not racist, well then you don't need any special protections for particular races. But in a genuinely transphobic society, you might think, well, you would. And in a general in a society where people have prejudice against people that are transracial, you might think that they do require some special legal protection.
1: I do. And I, I so that's an empirical argument. And I think what that then requires is robust sort of non-politicized evidence that that is a special kind of discrimination that isn't just falling out of homophobia or misogyny or distaste at sex non-conforming behavior you know i mean is there a difference in the way that a trans woman would be aggressed versus a drag queen or a man on a night wearing a dress or you know there's all of that i is empirical i'm not making any particular claims except to say that in britain transphobia is the category of transphobia is so ludicrously hyperbolized that it also includes everything I've said in this (laughs) this interview (laughs) you know um, you're not allowed to uh, deny the central tenet that trans women are women without counting as transphobic so in that er arena or in that context I get a bit nervous of Of claims that there's obviously such a thing as a terrible social problem with transphobia but I do think that there could be and there probably is and that we then need to kind of differentiate it out from all these other problems and work out whether it needs special protection and at the moment sorry it's just to add but in Britain gender reassignment is protected in law under the Equality Act and I'm absolutely fine with that (laughs) so the 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 thing I'm protesting uh, sort of arguing about is whether we change that category to gender identity. And that's the move that's being lobbied for. So I'm not trying to roll back protections for trans people in law.
2: I think that that's an important point to end with because a lot of people listening to the show and reading your book might think to themselves, well, you're transphobic and you want to roll back trans rights, but you're not trying to do so. Your quibble is on the definitions and on the implications that those have for certain legal institutions and the protections that certain groups have. Um, and their interests. So I, I, I think that a lot of people can agree with that, at least, that none of those rights should be rolled back.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to understand the context, and it's clear that the people signing the open letter against me did not understand what I was saying. In Britain, there is a lobbying move, really entrenched within civil society, to change the Equality Act from protecting gender reassignment, which is a process, to an identity. And that's And and then separately, many of our institutions have just gone and done that anyway. So they've changed all their policies towards gender identity. I make clear right at the beginning of the book that I'm not trying to to demolish existing legal protections in Britain. So I don't know why anyone would read it and not get that message. Maybe if they were determined to construct me as a a transphobe, they might, but I, uh, you know, there's plenty of trans women that agree with me and trans men, you know, they're just not necessarily being represented by lobbying groups in this discussion, or by philosophers even. Um, there's this horrible tendency to just take the first trans person you meet and say, right, well, they're speaking for the community. <laughs> but actually, of course, trans people are not hive mind, they're politically diverse, they metaphysically, they have disagreements with one another. So that needs to be brought into account too.